the last 10 years, people have been spoiled with the types of returns they've gotten from commercial real estate, specifically multi, like doubling your money in three years. Like I come from a country where if you double your money in 10 years, you're doing just fine, right? right. That's, that's, that's a low two-digit type of IRR over a 10-year 10 10 year term. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to grow their wealth by investing in US real estate. I'm your host, Reed Goosens, and so far, I've acquired over $800 million worth of investments on various properties across the United States. On this podcast, I interview go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business to learn more about their investment journey and the cutting-edge strategies they are applying towards building a legacy. For more on growing your own wealth and or buy investing in the US, visit www www.reedgoosens.com. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with JP Newman. Now, JP is the founder, CEO, and managing principal of Thrive FP, where he leads and oversees the firm's growth, strategic direction, and the real estate transactions as a member of the investment committee. Now, JP has worked to create a company that reflects the principles and values of conscious capitalism, which is what we're going to talk about later in the show. And in 2019, he co-founded the nonprofit Veritas Impact Partners to provide health, education, and financial services for workforce housing residents living in in his apartments. The mission is to create connected communities and to lighten the load of these cost burdened residents while maintaining solid profits for his investors. JP is also a licensed real estate broker and a certified commercial investment member. So without further ado, I'm really pumped and excited to get him on the show, but let's get him out here. G'day, JP. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Good, Reed. Thank you so much. What a, what a lovely opening. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> try, try my best, my friend. But um, you are dialing in from Austin, Texas, right? We've I've, I've been to your awesome office, but you're originally from California, right? I'm uh, born and raised in Los Angeles and uh, actually started out in the film industry. I worked for Sony Pictures. I was uh, head of family entertainment for many years. And right when I was getting married and realized that, that Sony Pictures was going to be a good corporate job, but never an entrepreneurial uh, outlet for me. My wife looked at me one day pregnant on the San Diego freeway in Santa Monica, screaming in traffic and says, get me out of this place. And that was the, the beginning of the end of Los Angeles and the, uh, the I could say now, looking back, a very lucky transition into Austin, Texas. That's awesome. Well, we, I want to get into that story. But before we do, let's rewind the clock and uh, tell, tell the listeners how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Well, you're going to laugh at the story, but it also is going to age me a little bit. But my, you know, I, I was lucky. I did have a very entrepreneurial father who really encouraged me at a young age to, uh, you know, to to learn about business. And so, at eight years old, uh, at the time, it was the first time that the electronic calculators had, had come out, and they were really selling for a premium. My dad had a way through a store one day; they had a sale where I could buy them and make a five dollar margin on each one, and he bought fifty of them. So I now had 50 of these calculators stuck underneath my bed at a $5 premium. An eight-year-old had a chance to make 250 bucks, and I was pretty excited about that. So literally, I was dressed up door-to-door in a suit, and I would go to offices. Can you imagine an eight-year-old in a suit selling these calculators? And I did manage to sell all 50 of them. I put up signs. I went to the supermarkets. I did everything. And, and it was a great lesson to earn. It felt so good at, to that, that an eight-year-old could be empowered enough to earn 250 bucks that it, that joy, I call it the Ferris Bueller moment where you're like, oh my God, I can do anything. And to this day, I have to tell you, I get a lot of joy. Like if I'm on a ski slope and one of my deals closes and I know money was deposited to my bank, I call that my best Ferris Bueller day. And I think it really started it as an eight-year-old kid. That's awesome. Yeah. What type of calculator do you remember? It was a no-name. It was a, it was a, it was a import. It was an Asian knockoff. 
<laughs> so yeah, it, it was not, nothing big. It just it, it did nothing. It just basically was a calculator. But at the time, they were still considered sacred. You know, you couldn't just jump on your phone and, and do those numbers. It was still considered like a, a valuable commodity at the time. I remember getting my first scientific calculator for high school. Uh, Texas Instruments was the of brand, oh, yeah. and uh, that was you know the big, the bigger one. That's probably the size of your palm, and it had you know the functions and the graphing and, and all that sort of stuff. I, I I got a reconditioned one for probably one hundred and ten bucks back in two thousand and two. So, um, anyway, it's probably dating me a little bit as well. But let's now walk through the the story because you've started this company Thrive, but you mentioned just before you were in the film industry. So, and your wife was sick of. LA. So how did that all come about? Yeah. So, you know, I actually started out my career and I think this is interesting having a 17 year old son who's applying for colleges. I really realized how much pressure we put on our kids to figure out where do you want to be at such a young age? And I can see my kid going through that. And so I just thought I was going to be a lawyer because that's what my dad told me I was going to be. And so I was went to UCLA pre-law and I realized very quickly as I was studying to go to law school that that had no energy or no passion. Something in me, thank God, I'm more entrepreneurial, just said this, that's not your destiny, even though your dad told you that was your destiny. And uh, I got in the toy business of all things. I, I, I tried a bunch of things. I probably had 26 jobs between 20 and 25. I think I, I, I parked cars. I did everything. I, I worked in uh, telesales. I just did everything to figure it out. And finally, I, I kind of landed at a toy company and that got me into uh, like literally people would pitch me ideas for new toys. And I just thought it was so cool that I could like go work for a toy company, have people, you know, pitching me toys. And ultimately that led to, you really had to understand the film industry because a lot of the toys would be based on the Power Rangers or Jurassic Park or all the Disney films. So I really had a, they kept constantly kept me to, you know, Hollywood premieres are coming even a year early to understand what films were coming out that could have toy properties to them. And I can tell you, it was one of the finest jobs you can ever imagine. It really was fantastic. And that led me actually, that experience of toys and merchandising and licensing Led that was really interesting. They were uh, Sony was looking for a uh, a person to lead family entertainment for them as a vice president, and I really was not. If anything, if you looked at me on paper, I was not the right candidate. I had no film experience, no production experience. But the truth was, what they wanted, and they wanted someone that could like contain themselves and didn't need a lot of handholding. Because the truth is, is they wanted to make beautiful big adult films. They really didn't want to make kids films. They just felt like they had to, so they hired. I convinced them to hire me basically because I think they saw my spunk and tenacity. They wouldn't have to steer me too much. And I was like, yeah, I was very blessed. I worked at Sony for five and a half years on the lot, which was incredibly fun. Got to produce some really great films that I'm really proud of. Learned a lot. And uh, you know, we built a $150 million you know, catalog of, of, of children's films from Bear in the Big Blue House, Dragon Tales. I got to produce some films like Trumpet of the Swan, which is a very famous book by E.B. White and Reese Witherspoon starred in it. So I, I got to do some really, really uh, neat things during my Hollywood career. Did that help land? I'm jumping forward a little bit, but did that help with those connections for investors? You know, I'd say yes, to a certain degree. You know, I, I call Sony my uh, the MBA I never paid for. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I was the youngest vice president out of over 450 people in this division. A lot of times I was, as my sister would say, I was a bull in a china shop. I'd be, you know, I wasn't good at being politically correct. I would just like, I had an idea. If I wanted to get it done, I'd push, 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 push. Very entrepreneurial. But it wasn't necessarily always the best instinct of making sure that A, was you know pleased or what have you. So I think it really helped me understand, because I was really clumsy for a long time at really understanding not what I needed, but what other people needed. And I think that time at Sony, even though it really was sometimes against my instinct or against my impulse, it gave me some refined impulses 
and refined education of really thinking through the chess pieces three steps ahead and making sure that everyone was on board, not just me and my excitement, but making sure that the next person is actually infused with that excitement and not just me guessing that they were because I was feeling it. I think that might have been one of the, the biggest lessons that I took away from it. That's awesome. So let's transition to Thrive and real estate because was the real estate in the blood in that moment talking to your pregnant wife on screaming on the highway going to San Diego or was it after the move to Austin that that occurred? No, actually, I left Sony. A long story, some politics. It just wasn't, I, I knew I wasn't going to go anywhere very far at Sony. And I left, produced my own film, which called Where the Red Fern Grows, which is a pretty famous, Disney released it. And it was pretty cool if you ever want to see it with Dave Matthews. And here's the, here's the uh, ironic part, Reed. I had to get a financer. So I got Dave Matthews, Alison Krauss. I got Disney to release it. It's a very famous book. It's considered 100 of the most important books in American literature of all time for children. And so, it was pretty exciting, but here's our irony. When I had to find money to put this together, I found a guy in real estate in Texas who, who wound up financing it. I knew nothing about real estate or Texas at the time. And the guy turned out to actually totally screw me. As soon as he met Dave Matthews and funded it and got to be famous, he just tore me apart and he really uh, abused me. I had to get a, you know, a lawyer and the whole thing. And after three years of putting blood, sweat and tears and putting a film together on my own, the beautiful thing is I'm really proud of the film. The bad news is the guy basically said to me, I'm super rich. You're not. I was 30. He's like, I'm just going to crush you. I know we have a contract, but I don't care. I'm just going to lawyer you to death unless you accept my terms. And it was a really, really hard. It, it, it really took the air out of me because can you imagine working that hard for three years with no salary because I loved this film? I was smart. Though. I was savvy from Sony. So my contract was solid. It wasn't like I had a bad contract. This guy literally just was arrogant enough and immoral enough to just say, I'm just not going to pay you what I told you I would. It was the bottom line. And by the time you get lawyers involved and you collect, you know, I collected a third of what I was deserved, but uh, it was a lesson. But I did decide after that, I really was passionate about and dreamt of financial freedom. And I just, that whole experience really exhausted me. So while I'm really, really proud of my time of producing great things, I decided at that point, I'm not going to do intellectual property anymore. I'm going to produce real property because mm -hmm. I feel like I could have more control. In intellectual property, I got to get a movie studio to say yes. So many things have to go right that are out of my control that as sexy as it is, I just found I had so little control versus with real estate, I felt like I, you know, there's still a lot of things have to go right, but I felt like I have a lot more control of my outcome. And that was all logical. So when I transferred from, from creative, you know, uh, you know, filmmaking to real estate, it, there was a real adjustment period for me psychologically. I would tell you, I felt depressed. I felt like I'd given up a dream. Real estate finance, which is really what Thrive is, is a real estate finance company doing syndication. I thought maybe I lost my way. I thought maybe I sold out. And it was a really, really hard couple of years of, because I knew that was logically correct, but I didn't know if I could ever find the joy in real estate the way I found the joy at Sony of actually you know, writing and working with writers and producers and all that. And it was a very, very hard tra uh, transition to be quite frank. I can relate somewhat. I, I'm not artistic. My mother was an artist. I, and the joke in the family is I don't have an art, artistic bone in my body. But I've found creating this podcast and creating books and creating a business, there is a creativity to it, right? There is a path blazing element that I assume from someone who is creative may be able to scratch a little bit of that side of you. Did, was that ever, did you ever experience that at all as in creating Thrive? 
it took me a couple of years of just going kind of getting out of survival mode. You know, when mm-hmm. I, because I got screwed out of that big contract, I spent my life savings on that film. So I was really out of money. You know, I joke and say my, I had my Tony Robbins poster up in my twenties and I'd be a millionaire at 30. And at 30 years old, I think I had $4,000 in my bank account in a <laughs> shitty car. And that was about <laughs> it. So I didn't quite hit my Tony Robbins goal. And then I, so I think for a long time, I just don't feel like I had the luxury to even think about like, can this be creative? It really was, you know, get food for the family and having my children, you know, diapers for the kids and, and, and food for the family, which didn't give me the luxury to think about anything beyond that. And then as the company started getting traction and success is really when I got to think of really starting to really, you know, dial back and think about how I can infuse creative elements and really make Thrive which it is today, very much a part, a creative part of my soul, which I couldn't tell you it was when I started and had just had moved to Austin, which was really a new beginning, uh, leaving LA, leaving Hollywood and going for a new beginning and a house I could afford. <laughs> Walk us through what Thrive has been able to do and, and when did you start Thrive and what, what were the early days like versus what it is today for the, for the listeners? So, you know, I moved to Austin 19 years ago and I left all my entertainment days behind me. My dad mentored me for about a year and a half in Los Angeles, which was, again, my dad came through. He was in the, he was a basically a retire, retiring syndicator, small. He had about two or $3 million of investor money left, but it was great. He, he taught me a lot of just the basic principles that gave me enough knowledge that I could actually go off on my own and start a company. So when I moved to Austin, I'd very... A couple, I probably had, you know, with him, I probably had two or $3 million with investors. I was working out of my home and, you know, and built the company really from scratch. And, you know, I, I have to say, I do take some credit. Austin was not an accident. I did some research and where I thought would be a place I'd want to live that would really have a great fertile playground for me for twenty, the next 20 to 25 years. And I did pick Austin. I, I could see, you know, I don't know if I could have even seen as much success as Austin's had, but I certainly felt that Austin was really poised to grow. So I met the values of a place that I could see raising my kids, as well as being a really good market for me. And, and then really, the story is very organic. It was one investor at a time. I put ads in the newspaper, $50,000 investors, and working my behind off. And finally, I could afford an office. And, uh, you know, I, I was lucky. And, and what happened was, um, do you remember Bernie Madoff, the whole Bernie Madoff thing? So right as I was trying to get, build momentum, Bernie Madoff gets you know indicted for fraud. And that really hurt my business. The economy was starting to go down. It was a recessionary time. Bernie Madoff just got caught and investors were scared, kind of like not that different than where we're at today. You know, when there's down markets, (laughs) right? People freeze. And this was definitely a frozen market. And people, you know, when people are scared, it's hard to get them to do anything. And so I really had to build a different kind of company. And it was very obvious to me. And maybe this is where creativity came in, that I had to build a company where I could prove fiduciary early. And so what I did is, I actually lent more because there wasn't much to buy, kind of like now. The prices were adjusting downwards. So I really focused on the private lending, hard money, private lending side through debt. And it's right when Dropbox came out. (laughs) So literally, I would tell people, you know, you don't, you know, you don't have to trust him. You don't have to trust me. It's all in this third party thing called Dropbox, which seems so revolutionary to have a cloud based file. So it was literally. You know, all you have to trust me with is that I know how to evaluate real estate, but you know, the title, the appraisal, the deeds all going to be sitting there, not in my office that you don't even know what it is. You get to see it. And that really was, I know it sounds so basic at this point, but it really, at the time, 
I think it really helped me where a lot of people got stuck and frozen. Embracing technology and being one of the first ones out there doing this gave me a leg up to bring in investors in a really hard time, which poised me, really set me up for success when the market opened up. Yep. No, well, I think you're right. It, it feels like that today. We've had a couple, you know, particularly in the word syndication, and I don't want to get off track. I want to get back to your story. Syndication has a bit of a dirty word. We've seen some some ad advertisements about you know the thirty two hundred unit Houston deal that went under, and yeah. you know people are uh, correcting. Commercial real estate's having a bit of a correction right now, and you know if you're in office, you're probably getting a little hosed. And if you bought in the last two years in multi, you're probably with floating rate debt, you might be getting a little bit hosed as well. So we all, you know, I think we all joke. We all have that one ugly stepchild <laughs> in the portfolio, but 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 it is. Uh, I think. Capital raising today is a lot more difficult than it was two or three years ago. So I could probably see very similar lessons that you learned from back then being applied today. And we mentioned earlier, you're going to start a, a, big, a big fund that we'll, we can talk about in a minute. This is the beauty of having a bit of gray hair and, and history that you can see history repeating itself. And, and okay, how do you now pivot today to make sure you can still attract you know investors? Because you know, my next question is, I, I assume you still think that, and I'm Getting away from the story a little bit, but but you're where we're going to now. You're you're about to raise a fund. You're about to keep going deploying capital. You you, you probably still think real estate is a very good investment vehicle long term. So, you know how how are you talking to investors today as 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 people are getting a little bit scared? Definitely. Well, you know, again, I'm almost using a playbook from my my original playbook. If you notice, like right now, I'm really focusing. I've always had for me for my business. I've always had two major parts of business that thrive. I've had an equity platform where I buy workforce housing, multifamily, and we've done about 17,000 uh, apartment units. But I've always had this debt thing, this hard money private lending as well. And what I've always found, and this was an early mentor of mine, not my father, someone else in Los Angeles, who said, JP, it's so good for your business to have more, like they call it like, like legs on a stool. And, and equity and debt tend to be sometimes very countercyclical, but complementary. When equity is raging and rates are low, people don't really need your money because money credit's easy to get, it's cheap. My commodity is not that valuable. Everyone's buying apartments, kind of like what we've been through in the last 10 years. But now when the markets, when the banks freeze up, interest rates get high, there'll be more demand. Well, now equity's soft and slow right now. All of a sudden, more people are calling me about borrowing money because the banks are getting scared and they're freezing. So this really was from my playbook from you know 18 years ago. And that's why I'm launching this $300 million debt fund. And it's, it's actually called the Thrive Lending Opportunity Fund. Um, really, again, it's 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 a fund that's really marketed for during more downtimes and tough credit. And when banks are really going to get hard, trying to help people get through some pretty rough times right now. Yeah. What do you what do you see? You know, what does your crystal ball see for the for the future right now in terms of where the Fed is and how we turned a corner. Are we at the you know, we're at the bottom, we're at the top. What you, where, where do you think we are at? Well, you might not like what I'm going to say, but I feel like it's, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature. So I'm a, I'm a total optimist, but I, I do feel like we're just seeing the cracks in the dam. The dam hasn't broken yet. And, you know, when you said we all have one or, you know, one bad cherry, I said, I wish it was only one right now. <laughs> I think we're all seeing the same pressures of, you know, expenses on everything of our property taxes, our insurance, our interest rates, our staff is just sky high. And all of a sudden, expenses are, are starting to make the numbers not work out. So there's only two things that can happen, right? Either interest rates have to go down or prices have to go down because people still want to make a risk adjusted return. Right. And so 
I don't think we're ever going back to the days of what we had. And to be honest, it was too low. In my opinion, it was just too low. And so I don't think there's any reason to go back there. You know, I think the Fed waited too long, but that's a whole other story. That's a whole different podcast. I do think that over time, and I think if I was to guess, if I was just a guessing man, Biden will put pressure before the election. So if you look at, you know, a year from now, there'll be pressure, but there's another year, but there's already cracks in a week down. So I think you are already seeing, and I'm seeing this as a buyer and a seller. I've got, I have two properties right now under contract for sale. I've had five fall out in the last three months where the equity wouldn't come through in the end. Like this, all that fear you can feel. So my thought is it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think we're already seeing 15 to 25% price adjustments in multifamily. I think there's another 10 to 20% to go. I really do. And so I don't like to say that, but that I think that's, so there's going to be, it's, it's probably like you read, there's like, I got to watch and protect my investors to much to the extent that I can over here, but I also have to be prepared for opportunities because I'm a long-term believer in the fundamentals of commercial real estate, particularly multifamily workforce housing in the United States. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm I'm not from the United States, but but multifamily doesn't even exist in Australia. It's very it's a very American thing, uh, and I don't want to get into why it is. I've talked spoke a lot about it on this show. The whole show is called Investing in the US. Go go back and listen to the 300 and odd episodes, and I'm sure you'll figure it out. <laughs> but I will say, you know, we're picking up a deal right today. Uh, it's it's at a 25 percent discount to the peak of a year ago, right? Yeah. On a price per price per door pound, uh, price per doesn't pound surprise me. You know, and I picked up two deals already like that this year. It's been harder to get investors to say, "Hey, double down in this market. We still we still see rent rent growth." But I do think some of the the cracks we're seeing, and I don't want to go off too much of a tangent. I want to get back to the story. Is fundamentally the deal's not necessarily a problem; it's a financing problem. You financed incorrectly, right? And then when the Fed raises rates five hundred percent, whatever it is, you know. Everyone's going to start to feel it, right? You can't just expect, and and we all gorged ourselves on very cheap debt, right? We, we do. do well, like theoretically, I heard someone complain. I heard one of our colleagues complain this week. Oh my God, can you believe rates are seven percent? I said, well, actually, if you think about it, seven percent is not a bad rate. It's a bad rate if you buy property at you know at a three cap. <laughs> yeah. But 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 really, fundamentally, seven. There's nothing wrong with seven percent. It just is based on how high real estate got. So that when you say it's a financing problem, it is. But as you know, financing is so interconnected with the value and the price. And so most people, you know, in order to earn cash flow, they're looking at the spread. Hopefully I'm not going too far between cap no, rates no. and interest rates. So so they, you're right. It is a it's a financing problem, but the financing problem absolutely, you know, affects valuations uh, of properties, which which we're seeing. And right. you're obviously taking advantage of it, which I think is brilliant. No, I think you know, today it's all buying you know, buying agency loans and buying the rate down as you can, getting cap rates in the high fives, which I haven't ever bought at a high five ever. <laughs> you know, so uh, across growth markets, that is, and I'm not talking about secondary markets, but I'm talking about growth, true growth, Austin's, Phoenix's, you know, Carolinas, you know, Florida's. Those are all but- six, seven, eight. You know, in the beginning of the last cycle, I was paying six, seven, eight. You know, cap rates. Secondary markets like Shreveport, Shreveport, Louisiana, where I started my career, I was buying 12 gaps. So That's I've seen a, this yeah. before. So the numbers don't really matter, right? At the end of the day, if it's a 12 cap or a five cap, it, it really matters. You know, investors just want to know what kind of risk adjusted return is my real estate investing producing. Everything else is kind of like we get so caught up on the numbers. And at the end of the day, it's just like, what are the alternatives in the marketplace for an investor? And how does real estate compare versus those? Um, you know, those, those other investment alternatives. I will add just to close a loop on that, that it's 
the last 10 years, people have been spoiled with the types of returns they've gotten from commercial real estate, specifically multi, like doubling your money in three years. Like I come from a country where if you double your money in 10 years, you're doing just fine, right? right. That's 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 a low two-digit type of IRR over a 10-year 10 10-year term. And we've always said at RSN, you know, and other companies I've found, if we can double your money in five to seven years, we're doing just just great. And so when you've given... And all we've done a couple of deals, and you know the deals we've done, that we've been able to double people's money in 30 months. It's like, and people are like, oh, that looks great. And you're like, yeah, but don't expect that all the time. And now people have got this expectation and you show them a 14. I'm like, no, it's a true 14 IRR. It's risk adjusted. Like, ah, oh, I don't want 17. You're like, what are, you know, like, what are we doing here? You know, <laughs> so- oh, you got- I, think, I think this moment in time, all that's washing out in this moment of time. Correct. I completely yeah. agree. And I, and I could have a whole podcast on that because I do want to talk about that. But I want to get back to- what you've built with Thrive, because I think your story around, um, which I want to now pivot into, is the conscious capitalism, right? Talk to me about how that came about, because you're a creative guy, you've come into this world, you're raising money. You said you had, in the beginning of you know, raising syndication, and, and it was very uh, bootstrapping it in the beginning. How did this self-awareness come around to say, you know, I want to make money for investors, but I also want to do, try and do some good in, in the world, and, and maybe give a bit of a background to, to that? Yeah, well, you know, it didn't really necessarily come from my childhood because I did not come from a philanthropic family. Um, I think it really was like I think like like human nature, we we tend to see what we want to see, and it's not. Be, I I don't blame people, but I think our industry, if I was to be completely honest, tends to be by nature can be very extractive to residents, where people are favoring their investor return. So we talk about you know, there's only there's it's really simple. How do we how do we create a return for investors? We raise rents. Or we lower expenses or do a combination of both. And usually when either you're raising rents or squeezing expenses, the residents are not thriving in either one of those scenarios. And I think that, again, I don't think people are evil. I don't think people are trying to. I just think it becomes like you're almost not aware of what you're doing. And I think it's very easy for residents to become commodities, right? So you're, we're in the, we're, we're, you could say we're in the rental business and we're commoditizing the residents. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression. How many pieces of traffic came in the door this week? How many times have you heard that from a manager? Well, when you call someone a piece of traffic versus a human being, a resident, you're commoditizing them. And, that, and again, it's all through our industry. And again, and so I think for me, it was just kind of a wake-up call when you start to actually look and as you've, how many walkthroughs have you done in real estate? And you walk through these properties and you see how people are living. And I think you know when you're out of your own survival mode and maybe just kind of looking and saying, hmm, are we really doing good for the residents? Like, and it's easy to convince yourself that we are. We all kind of tell ourselves, "Oh, yeah, look, we're we're have a sparkling pool. We painted it beige. Yeah, you painted it beige, but you raised the rent down twenty bucks. Like, let's just be honest. Whatever honesty looks like. And by the way, I'm no saint. I'm a for-profit guy who also has to re- create a return for my investor. But I just think I got really. Um, it started mattering to me more, and it started at a TED conference. I went to a local TED conference here in Austin. And some guy was talking about his experience uh, up in the mountains that had nothing to do with real estate and what thriving really truly looks like. And it was that moment I had a little bit of an aha. And I said, what if I could create truly thriving communities? He used the word thriving as he was climbing up a mountain. But it hit me that like, wow, what if I could really have thriving communities? And what would that look like? What if what if I tried to be more creative and less extractive to the resident and didn't want to, you know, could I use my creative juices from Sony? And I actually create that without hurting my investor return. And I came back and I told my partner, we're going to do, we're going to be Thrive FP, for purpose, for profit, damn it. And he said, he looked at me very stressed and said, God damn it, I don't want to do FP. Yeah, he used the F bomb. He's like, you mean we're going to be a 
you know, a nonprofit, you know, if I can use the language, that's pretty much what he said. And I said, no, we're not going to be a nonprofit. It was, it was scary. It's really scary. What if you tell your investors, we're actually going to, you know, we're going to do things, we're going to invest in the residents as well. And there was a lot of fear around doing that. So I went very gently, one step at a time. It's not like I had a master plan. I'm like, let's try to plant a garden and see what happens. Let's put up wind chimes for 90 bucks. I'll pay the 90 bucks. Put up wind chimes in front of every rental property we have and just see what people think about wind chimes. I think it kind of like, maybe it shows that you're home. Just like even, even like simple wind chimes, like really, really simple stuff. And, and I think that on my podcast, Rita, a lot of times I talk about like, Sometimes it's just one step at a time. It's just one baby step at a time that leads you to this beautiful path. And I've described to you that my my path with Thrive really was one baby step at a time that has led to a much, much bigger push now um, that I'm so grateful for, but I couldn't see the journey. Um, I was just simply trying to make sure that as I was starting to make my own money, that I wasn't doing it on the backs of other people. That was really mm. kind of the, the basic premise behind it. Mm. In this world of raising capital, and you, it's nearly like the right and the left, and we talk, we got a little bit political about this, but like, did that cause your some of your maybe right leaning investors to be like, oh, conscious capital, you know, like what, what the, f-? you know, like go, go pound sand, you bloody you, you hippie, you know, like did that did that give get a blowback, you know, because because the, the you know you, we are in a space where we raise money for people who want to be who want to grow their their dollars, and that's not a bad, that's not a that's not evil. But some people could see that as evil, and thus, if you try and go a little bit swing back the other way, oh gosh, now you go, oh, you, you know, you're now being accused of being X, Y, Z. So, did that ever come into uh, conversations? There's there were there was a lot of concern about that, and two things I came to the conclusion: one, a lot of the investors that we attracted, being in Austin, were not your you know suit and tie, belt and suspenders kind of investors to begin with. So, I think that was helpful. But when I really thought about, it, I said, what if I lose some investors to my partner? What if we lose some people? And I said, you know what? I'm okay with that. Like, I don't really, you know, like I prefer not to, but I'm okay with it. We'll make it up. Instead of being scarcity, I thought I'm an abundant. I'm like, I really want the company culture to be a culture that, you know, that we really truly believe in the triple bottom line, that doing good and doing well are synonymous and doesn't have to be one or the other. And so really from the very beginning, if you listen to my podcast and really what I'm about read at this point in my life is this, I, I'm really passionate that, you know, money being a force for good that the triple bottom line is real and to really encourage people that, you know, purpose-driven, sustainable businesses create outsized returns. You know, in the case of Thrive, my my, my whether it's on the nonprofit side or the for-profit side, I can show you again and again that, that treating residents well, I have a 30% higher resident retention almost in every market that I'm in versus my competitors. And so as, as much as that warms my heart, I'm going to beat you by about 30%. I can tell you after doing this for 10 years, I'm going to get a 20 to 30%. I'm going to, I'm going to literally outpace you financially by 20 or 30% because my residents tend to be loyal. I pay less leasing fees to agents because I get more referrals, particularly in Hispanic communities. When they feel like they're treated well, they feel like it's a family. And I know I'm doing well. When I start to see them put out plants or painting their walls, then I know I'm doing well because that means they feel this is home. So I really, I, I really can make a strong economic case for why this really makes sense. And it was scary, by the way. Just to answer your question, it really scared us for a while. There was a risk involved with it. We might have lost a couple of investors at the end of the day. And I don't honestly know if I've really gained a lot of investors through social impact or not. I really don't know. It'd be a good question to ask my investors. I don't know. I wasn't really doing it for them. It's it's ironic now with all this ESG being you know the most popular thing on the planet and everybody wanting to have these social impact funds. All of a sudden, I'm highly in fashion. I look like the perfect fund at the perfect time. But my my drive really was internal. 
the whole time and until today really you know it's great you know that it you know esg is fashionable and it's all in tune but it really it came from the beginning from a different place mm. no look i i struggle with that myself a little bit as a leader of a company and you know i do want to do more and do you know give back and and you know you can you can dress it a certain way but there's gonna there may be some people in in particularly in the investing world that just look at you as like you know as i said before you know you're you know, you're so you know, you bloody socialist or whatever. You know, that's not the point. And I think yeah, the point is trying to, you know, as you're saying, doing doing good by by doing well. And it's it's not they they don't have to be one or the other, right? You can run a business consciously and not have to. That will ultimately have better impacts on your bottom line. And I think you probably have ten years worth of data to show that. So that's 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 really freaking awesome. Yeah, you think about it. I'm going to get a little philosophical on you for for like ten yeah. seconds, and you, then yeah, you can bring me in. You know, I think for a lot of businesses, once again, it's kind of like, um, like you look at airlines. When you buy a ticket on an airline, you're paying for the cost of the plane, you know, all the employees, the gas, but you know, you know what you're not paying for? What are the pollution costs of the planet? Like what, what, when you, when you put carbon in there, and I hate to sound like, I don't want to, you know, lean too much, but the point is there's so many businesses where we don't really take in the total cost of what did it cost to make that dollar? And in the case of apartments, it's like, what is the cost if a tenant, you know, if a tenant feels like they're a commodity and they're just a rent for a rectangular box? What's the cost of that in many, many ways? And I think for all businesses, simply as business leaders and business owners, I just feel like we have a responsibility as humans to, to take a more, we don't, you don't have to do it, but I think that holistic approach really creates a much happier planet. So I would say it's a very humanistic view. It may not may not make you your last bottom dollar, but actually, I can tell you for me, I think I've when I look at my returns versus my competitors, I I know I'm out I'm outperforming my I'm outperforming my peers because of this resident retention. So again, I would say it's a really smart business strategy no, to, I, I, to, to to do the right thing. I completely agree, and it's it's little things like, and I don't want to um, when you when you be able to put numbers behind it, I think people get more on, on involved. And one of the simple things is, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a big coming from a arid country in Australia. The water use here in America is so stupid. Particularly living here in LA, everyone wants green green grass, and you know, the frick, you live in a desert for crying out loud. Like it should be treated <laughs> as a commodity. So, like doing low flow toilets, yeah, not only helps the you know an aging building, but actually helps the tenants as well because they're paying less. Right. right and and someone be like oh you bloody green hippie like we'll look at the numbers and oh okay that makes right. sense you know so totally. um well, just just quickly before we tie tie a bow around that just just some what are you doing like you may, you say resident retention but wind chimes are, I'm not sure you're just doing wind chimes what else are you doing to retain that t- uh, resident more effectively well again I'm gonna, now I'm going to have to split my hat with you so we we launched three years ago a nonprofit called Veritas Impact Partners and. So Veritas's main thing was there was three of us that that co-founded it. And the purpose of Veritas was for the first time, what if programs around financial uh, financial uh, education, financial literacy, education, and better health outcomes were just baked into rent? So instead of rent just being you pay $1,000 for a rectangular box, it's 800 feet, it has off-white paint, it has agreeable beige, or you know, we all know the colors I can, I can cite to you. But what if programs came with that? We all talk about affordability. But what if affordability wasn't lowering rent? What if it was just helping people out so that that base their overall financial impact was less? And that really is, was the uh, that is the impetus of Veritas is that programs come with rent. And my goal and my legacy hopefully will be that 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 is becomes an industry practice that programs come with rent. So what sort around, of programs are you? Are you, are you yeah. So like around health, for instance, we're the first company, and, I, and I'm talking on the nonprofit side now. 
and by the way, this is open to all apartment owners who wants to hire the nonprofit Veritas. Um, we, we've actually hired uh, Teladoc. So we are the first group to provide free telemedicine in certain communities where we know they don't have health insurance or, or telemedicine is not a health benefit. And we're doing both mental and physical uh, during COVID. Can you imagine all the people undocumented who had sick kids? They didn't know what to do. They'd crowd the ER rooms and they wouldn't go at all. And we launched we launched this program during COVID. So giving people out of their living room, away from their phone, to talk to a doctor to see if their kid's okay, what should they do? Which again is a great benefit to society because you're not clogging up ER, ERs around the country, um, and you're also taking the fear out of mothers who at two in the morning are watching their kids cough and they don't know if their kids living or dying or what they should do. So we are now in on the nonprofit side. We are now in eight thousand homes, which is about twenty four thousand. Uh, families that we're serving. You know, other things that we're doing is around education, tutoring. So we've joined with another nonprofit. And if you're, whether you're in third grade math or you're in, um, you know, college, we have tutoring, digital, online, free tutoring, all kids, all languages, all the time. Around finances, we just partnered with a group called Viva, and we are now banking the unbanked. So we are providing checking accounts, financial education, and saving incentives for those who may maybe don't even have a bank account. And it's a digital platform, uh, bank account, tips on how to save. Uh, in the future, we're hoping to build an endowment that will actually match savings so that if you go through a year or two and you actually are able to save, you know, and, and by the way, savings is a really interesting thing. What you learn about saving, even 500 bucks, is a lot of people were just never taught how to save. You know, going back to my story, my dad, you know, my dad taught me how to make 250 bucks at eight years old. And that, I mean, I, there was so much I had an advantage of having a dad, which is why the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad is such a relevant book. I had a rich dad who taught me financial literacy, but they don't teach it anywhere else. So the, teaching people financial literacy from the most basic standpoint is, is really, really can change people's lives. And we're already having a great success teaching people how to save. And what you learn about savings is it's a self-esteem issue, particularly for women, single women. They don't feel like they have any control. And even saving something as little as 500 bucks, what you really find out is it there is an insecurity and a fear around money and a, and a feeling of lack of self-worth. And when they save, the words they're saying are not what you would think. It's not like I had X amount of dollars in a bank account. It's like it makes it changes the way they feel about the value of themselves, not just the value of what's in their bank account. And uh, we're going to double down. This is a new program with Viva again, checking accounts. And uh, if all goes well, like I said, we're going to even have incentives. To, uh, the next plan is to help people educate them on a down payment. And even helping them get a down payment, which sounds like a weird thing. Of why would you want people to move out of your apartments? And you and I know the answer. And the answer is if somebody really wants to have a down payment, we have a six million person supply demand imbalance. Where there's six million more people who, who need apartments than supply. So we can think as owners from a place of abundance. We don't have to. We don't have to hold them. And then when you don't hold them, guess what you create? Thirty percent more retention because they feel they feel they feel empowered empowered and seen by their by by the ownership and they know it they may not know my face but they know that's why would someone do this for me you know it, it, it sends a different message as a selfish as a uh, operator myself i know we struggle with 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 collections and stuff like that is veritas open to partnering with other third-party owners and operators to bring in their system you know we, we should definitely talk about this offline because i think this is a very big issue coming out of covid um, and, and the connection of AI right now and, and, and collecting rents and you know, meter lease and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot more 
things that we're trying to do to help the on-site team do their job better. But if they had other tools to incentivize people to, to, to rent, I think that like Teledoc is just a, an awesome one. You know, you could even go to the next level and do Televet because <laughs> of all the freaking dogs that you have, you know. So, totally. um, but, ed- but education and tutoring, I think, are just such a great thing. So I'll definitely chat, chat with you a little bit offline. Yeah. Uh, to, wrap, to wrap up the show, we, we're, we're, like, give us a sort of snapshot of where you're heading in the next you know, two two to five years. Uh, I know you personally. You know, you you you're, you're, without spoiling, stepping stepping not away, but just in a different direction. But what does yeah. that look like as as Thrive keeps thriving? Yeah. So you know, I guess everyone has different things. I definitely don't want to retire, but I love this idea. Uh, Chip Conley talks about it as you, I'm in my fifties, and so in your fifties, it's like if you've been given you know great success. You know, with great sex success comes great responsibility, and I think, you know, I actually might have another company. I'm actually playing with the idea of of another company because I just, I I have so much creative energy. But the truth is, I also want to make sure that servant leadership is really like, I, I, you know, mentorship, servant leadership, communities. I'm really passionate about all communities, whether they're apartment communities or or even leadership. Thought, you know, communities like this conversation we're having now, like how do we create better leaders? How do we, you know, at the end of the day, you know, when we die, what what was our legacy? Not like not what are we remembered for, but really what was important. So I think a lot of what I'm thinking about right now is in the lines of servant leadership, uh, mentorship, and this idea of what you know. Can I you know if given so much, can we you know hopefully even on this podcast, if one person gets one idea that helps their business or they think a little differently, you know, I told you like you know for me it started with a tomato garden. And I realized that tomatoes weren't good, by the way, because kids throw them. But it started <laughs> with the idea. But it started with the idea of like, I'll, what if I did a whim chime or like one step at a time? And I'm really, I'm hoping that that impact, whether it's one listener on your show or whatever it is, creates these like winds of change. And that really is what what empowers me to this point. So I'm going to be going more to a chairmanship role. Um, I'm actually doubling down on my employees right now in terms of training process. Um, so that really the company does continue to thrive. We're looking, you know, my partner is about my same age. Uh, and we both kind of looked at each other and said, you know, do you want to play golf or do you want to do something? We're actually looking to double the size of the company of equity under management. We currently have about 250 million under management. And uh, our next goal is 500 million and really, really participating in, in the next round, which we think is going to be, you know, exciting. We really are, are long-term bullish on real estate. So it's it's just a different way of looking at it, but, but, I want to use my, I want to continue growing. So um, I don't think you and I like, I'll, I love deals. I just love deals. I love hearing about them. But you and I could talk offline for hours and, and that would be great. So I'm not walking away from real estate. I just want to like change my relationship with it, basically. Yeah, no, I think that's changed the relationship with it. I think that's, uh, that is the sort of, um, the summary of the show, I think, is a very, very good changing relationship and, and seeing that evolve over time and thriving. So, so, so thank you for sharing that. Um, at the end of every show, we'd like to dive into the lightning round of the top five investing tips. Ready to get into it? Let's do it. Mate, question number one is what ha- daily habit do you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Um, well, I have been doing more and more. And just this week, I actually bought a cold plunge. So I'm really mm. trying my- mindfulness that before I get involved in emails or anything, that I spend my first 15 minutes, even if it's just 15 minutes, hopefully it's longer, doing something where I'm tuning my body towards waking up and presence. Yep. And I think it makes me a lot more productive for my day. 100%. I try not use the phone for the first hour. I've got a young 10, nine-month-old, so she's taking up all my mornings. But, uh, you know, I, I understand the, the what you're trying to get there. Awesome, awesome on the cold plunge. Uh, question number two is, 
Who's been the most influential person in your career to date? Interesting. Well, certainly my father has been one of them. I'll always be grateful that he trained me. But, you know, uh, I'd have to also say um, Peter Diamantis and Tony Robbins are people I don't know that really influenced me. Uh, you know, when I read Peter Diamantis's book, Bold uh, and Abundance, it really gave me this idea of what we've been talking about on the show about um, business being a force for good and really an op- rather than dystopian futures that everyone wants to talk about, these dystopian futures of AI. Well, what if we could vote through what we do, through our money, through our currency? And I think that idea between Tony Robbins and, and Peter Diamantis really affected how I see the world um, today. Mm, awesome. Question number three is, what's the most influential tool in your business? And when I say a tool, it could be a, a notebook like this, which I'm scribbling in, uh, so a physical tool, or it could be a piece of software that you just can't run the business without. What is it? Well, I can tell you my staff would have a different opinion than me. They would say it's Juniper for, for you know, relationship management. I, I, I think for me uh, these days, I think this computer and I think this moment of us podcasting together, you know, I think sometimes we take this for granted, but you and I are live right now. Like this would have been like the Jetsons 10 years ago. We, <laughs> we, we have a stable internet connection. And for the first time in COVID really did this where everybody knows you can meet on Zoom. We can do transactions around the world. We can do everything on the fly. And so I, I'm going to argue that this laptop and Zoom is the most important thing because even with all the AI and I'm using ChatGPT and I'm going to write pretty letters, the bottom line is whether it's attracting investors or having that broker call you for the next great deal, it's still that human connection. Am I going to call Reader JP or am I going to call someone else? Who's going to be the, who's going to close? Who is the most pleasant to deal with? Who do I trust? All those human instincts are so important. And that's where I don't think that you can't commoditize. You can make things more efficient, but you're not going to commoditize human interaction because we are we are feeling beings. And unless singularity or we can create co- consciousness and robots, which could be another episode, I still think that's going to have a premium and ultimate success for, for, for entrepreneurs. Love that. Feeling beans. I love that. People just didn't, didn't, didn't catch that one. Uh, question number four is, what in one sentence, what's been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure? Well, I'll give you one of those to the one that came up to mind. I had someone steal money from me. It was a trusted consultant early in my business. And uh, I actually called him the uncle to my kids. That's how much I trusted him when my kids were young. And I found out he was stealing money. You know, he had access to a bank account and he stole a good amount of money from the bank account. And it took my breath away. Both, you know, it was a financial setback, um, but also I just didn't think that someone that I could trust in so much in my family would ever steal money from me. And then on top of it, because he was kind of a, a lawyer, he sued me because he knew I was going to indict him. And so he sued me for, he made up this whole story that I owed him back bills or he had made up invoices and said he was actually just collecting what he needed to collect. First, he cried and told me he was sorry. But after that, he went into this whole story. And we met, the last time we met face to face, he was like trying to bully me, like, you're going to even pay me more. Like he was extorting me. Like I, I think he felt he wanted a piece of my success. And at the time, I threatened to sue him. And it turned out that it turned into a huge legal battle that took two years. And I don't remember how much money, but it was quite a bit of money. And I wonder, looking back on that, if it would have been better not to threaten to sue him, if I just wasn't so attached, if I just would have let him take the money and get rid of him out of my life and move on, it probably would have saved two years of hell and dispositions. We all know if you've ever been in a lawsuit, how energetically draining they are. So I think the lesson is, be careful to stay out of lawsuits. You know, and sometimes I've lost many cases where I knew I was right now, 
and I'm willing to settle now because I just see the toll it takes both economically and psychologically. And what's the value of your time? Right. No, I, no thank you for sharing that. It's, it's, it's obviously a lesson we all hope we never have to go through, but, but thank you uh, for, for giving that advice. Last question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation that will be in your sphere? Where do they go? Sure. If you want to know more about our company, thrivefp.com, it's T-H-R-I-V-E-F-P.com. On the side of my podcast, if you want to hear more about this conscious capitalism, I have a podcast called Investing on Purpose. And Investing on Purpose is on all the channels, Spotify, YouTube, and what have you. And again, it's a show very much like what we're talking about, uh, creating sustainable businesses where I interview CEOs who are creating these outsized returns and the creative ideas they're applying. Uh, very much like you read it, how, how, how CEOs are really using their creativity to create better outcomes. That's awesome. Well, mate, I want to thank you so much for jumping on the show today. We've been recording for nearly 50 minutes. I could continue talking to you, your, your wealth of knowledge. Uh, just some of the things that I took away from today's show, I think the, the last statement you made, changing your relationship with real estate, and I think it sums up every entrepreneur's journey in a sense that you do it to, to create the financial freedom, right? But then you start to realize you know, they're not just a piece of traffic. They're, they're, they're a human being and creating these other things around being conscious of how you, you create money or abundance in your life through money uh, by re-changing um, the mindset of how you view someone else, right? As, as the widget, so to speak. is They're not a widget, they're a human. And, um, you know, we, we rent to low socioeconomic people. Well, they may need a teledoctor or they may need some extra tutoring, uh, tutor, tutoring or they may need to be taught how to save better. And these little pieces are, you know, cost you relatively nothing but can be such impactful on the greater community, which can also impact your returns for your investors. So that's been so – I've taken – you mentioned before what, what, what you take away from the show. I've taken a lot away from this show. I've done over Great. 500 bloody episodes on this show, and mm -hmm. that's been such a – as an operator, from an operator to another operator, thank you for sharing. So Yeah, yeah there's um, one more big piece that you and I haven't talked about at the end of the day too, and we'll save it for you know a, a future show. But as humans, we tend to be happier when we're doing the right thing. Like I think – how many people have you met that are – you know there's plenty of people who are wealthier than me that drive jets and yachts, and I, I feel like I'm – probably doing better than most of them because I'm at peace with myself. And I know that's a whole other like, you know, but I think that's, that's the selfish benefit. That's the selfish return you get of your own IRR, your entrepreneurial IRR is. I love is that. that. Yeah. Entrepreneurial IRR. I love that. Well, mate, thank you again. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up thank very, very soon. Thanks, Ray. Appreciate it. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam packed with some incredible advice from JP. Please remember to go over to www.thrivefp.com to check him out or Investing in Purpose, I should say. It's across all the platforms, Spotify. Just Google it. Uh, JP is a wealth of knowledge. If you are in Austin, don't, don't go knocking on his door, but I'm sure he'd be willing to, to meet up for a coffee if you are listening into this show. I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about on this show. If you'd like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. We're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. <music>